metaphors that the Bible gives us are things like sin is a stain, right? It's something that gets on you and it just, it won't come off. Now, sin isn't literally a stain. When I, right, when I sin, I don't actually get this like mark on me that's a literal stain, But understanding it as a stain helps us to grasp that it is something that gets on you and it does not come off. We cannot rub it off or wash it off no matter how hard we try. Similarly, uh, a New Testament word for sin is a picture of an archer missing a mark. Which... Excuse me, but so that it's what makes things even more complicated in talking about sin is that the concept of sin actually changes in the Bible as the Bible moves forward in history. The language of sin morphs and changes with the language of the people who are writing it and with the culture of the people who are writing it. And this is part of God's intent because no one culture can really put to words the fullness of grace, love, or of sin. And so I think part of God's intention is Scripture is to show it keeps morphing and changing because it is bigger than any one culture at any one time can fully grasp. So this being said, in most of the Hebrew Bible, the dominant metaphor for sin is weight. It's a burden. It's a burden that weighs you down. When you see the word in the Old Testament, a lot of the times it this, has this heaviness to it. And then, of course, when it's forgiven, it's lifted off, right? And as a metaphor, we can all picture that. If you picture yourself holding something heavy and then that release of letting it go, that helps us to understand this abstract concept in a way that really resonates with our physicality. Then in the, sec- in the period after the Hebrew Scriptures were written and leading up to Jesus, it's a period that's often called Second Temple Judaism, which surprise, it's the period of time when they had the second temple of Judaism, right? The main metaphor changed from being a sin as a weight to becoming sin as a debt. This is largely because having to learn, the Jews having to learn Aramaic when they were taken into captivity, the Jews began to incorporate Aramaic concepts into the way they spoke about God and sin. This is why in the Gospels, that's the part of our Bibles that tells us about Jesus, many of Jesus' parables are talking about sin as debt. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. The kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. Right? This is why the New Testament talks about redemption. Redemption is buying back someone who has been sold into slavery. Sold into slavery because they were not able to pay their debts. They owed debts to someone. They couldn't pay it. And so they had to be sold into slavery to the person until they could pay back. And so often in the redemption language, a family member who owes a great debt had to be sold into slavery. And the way to bring them back to your family to restore honor and place is to redeem them, is to pay off their debt and buy them back. And that's the redemption imagery that we have in the New Testament. And it comes out of, this, uh, out of that Jewish history, particularly uh, as, uh, as the Jews learned Aramaic and the Hebrew language shifted and changed along with it. 
So this metaphor of sin as a debt is not only the metaphor in the New Testament, of course, but it is a primary one for both Jesus and it's for Paul. Even though he's using a Greek word, which means something else, the way he uses that word is mostly referencing debt. Now, as a side note to all this, I think it's important. When we speak of sin today, we need to use metaphors that help us understand in our context. Jesus didn't actually decide to get rid of sin as a weight, right? And he didn't make up sin as a debt. He was actually only using the language and imagery that he was born into. Can you believe that? The Son of God. He was using the language he was born into to help the people he was speaking to understand. So same as Paul who added the shift to Greek by adding words that missed the mark. It continues to shift. Paul also uses the image in this passage that Martin read for us, this image of trespass. Right? It's a picture of taking the wrong step. However, most commentaries think that Paul is just using it as another word. It's a synonym, which means it, it means it's meaning the same thing for Paul as opposed to adding a new metaphor to it. The reality and the need, I think, for updating metaphors for sin in different cultures is why we often will use the metaphor of sin as brokenness here. In our society where we see the importance of wholeness, that wholeness and being integrated is part of God's intent for us from the very beginnings. And therefore, brokenness becomes a good metaphor for what severs us, what disintegrates us, what divides us, etc., etc. This is also how North American indigenous translation of Scripture translates sin as broken ways. The indigenous translation of Scripture, the North American one, verse 12 says, Red clay, that's Adam, was the first human being to fail to live the life he was created for. His broken ways brought death to all who followed in his footsteps. For death comes from following bad hearts and broken ways. Which brings us back around to the main point that Paul is seeking to make about Adam and sin. Paul is saying that when sin entered the world through the one man of Adam, it brought death. It brought death to us all. There is no part of creation that sin and death do not touch. Sin and death are universal problems for the whole of creation. And Paul speaks of them actually in these personified ways. Like there are these beings that are moving through the earth, doing these, doing, causing destruction, causing death, that sin and death reign, that they can be obeyed, that they demand wages, right? They demand wages. That language that many of us are familiar with is sin as debt. We owe something. Sin and death are powers in the world that reign, and no one and no thing is out of their range. They bring judgment and condemnation to all under their reign. Paul points out in verse 13 and 14 that even before God gave them the law, the thing that made them accountable for their actions, sin was still in the world and death reigned. But then, as verse 20 says, once the law was given, the only thing that made their debt and their slavery to sin... Once the law was given, it only made their debt and their slavery to sin, it only made it increase even more. It multiplied it because now they're being held to account. 
And Paul wants us to hear how, without a doubt, how big of a problem sin is. It, sin brought death, not the other way around. Sin brought death into the world. The sin of one man caused the death of many. The judgment that comes from just one sin brings condemnation. One man's disobedience made many sinners. The sin of one multiplies to unfathomable levels of consequence for the whole world. And all of us are stuck in that. And that is part of our life. We cannot get away from that. But for Paul, this isn't the end of the story. This is just the beginning. Paul uses Adam as the one man to compare and contrast to another one man. The shape of this structure as on the screen, the shape of this whole passage is actually structured around the re a repeated compare and contrast phrase which Paul uses. Paul says, just as... Blah, 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 blah. So also. Da, 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 da. We see it four times. Though interestingly, Paul, the first time Paul says, just says, he kind of forgets, seems to forget the also. He gets kind of caught up, as Paul often does. Um, however, even though he forgets the so also, instead he has another repeated compare and contrast phrase. For if, how much more? Just as sin, and these are the, uh, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. And Paul gets a little sidetracked. For if the many died by the trespass of one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? For if by the trespass of one man, death and reign through that one man, how much more... Will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in this life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. Just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. Just as sin reigned in death, so also grace, so also grace will reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Every just as, every for if, we need to understand the, the importance and the depth of sin and death. But as Paul is saying this so that he can get to the how much more, so also. And this isn't a, if you know the expression, tit-for-tat comparison, where every one point that death gives, sin, every one point that death and sin gets, grace just matches it, right? Sin gets one, then, okay, grace has to cover it, one, right? Sin gets two, okay, grace now has to do two. This, that's not the picture that we get here. The grace of the, and the gift of one man, Jesus Christ, far outweighs, it overshadows the consequences of the sin of the one man, Adam. Death and sin are powers and realities that impact every single one of us. There's no way any of us are getting around this thing, but in comparison to the grace and gift of Jesus, 
In an art metaphor, sin is like my stick figure drawing in comparison to the masterpiece of da Vinci's. In a sound metaphor, death would be a quiet whisper, whereas grace is shouted through the, the, the largest sound, uh, sound platform you can imagine. I tried to come up with a mathematical comparison. <laughs> At first, I thought maybe perhaps sin is neither greater than nor equal to grace. Or perhaps sin is uh, less than but not equal to. But that's not right because it doesn't actually show this huge gap between them. So then I thought perhaps of debt imagery. If we were to do it like a budget presentation, right? Comparing the debt of sin versus the gift of grace where sin is a deficit and grace is income or surplus. It would perhaps look something like this, but it would really more look something like this next one. Right? And, and that one actually keeps going. You can't see the end of it. If sin is a debt in red that ke- keeps going up and up and up, gift is a grace that is, uh, gift and grace is always so much more. How much more? The reign of grace of Jesus is exponentially greater than the reign of death. I mean, the math is off. Through one sin, judgment followed and multiplied to condemnation and death. But through Jesus, many sins, not one, but many sins, followed by the gift, then multiplies to justification and life. God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reigning in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. As a side note, if you're thinking, well, if God's grace is in fact exponentially more than sin, then we can probably just do whatever we want and it only magnifies the grace more, right? Well, if you're thinking that, Paul addresses that in the next chapter. Uh, But that's for Emily to deal with next week. But just if you're thinking that, you can read on. Read chapter 6. So this is where debt... The metaphor of debt is actually a cause, has caused challenge in the history of Christianity. If sin is a measurable debt, say you owe someone 20 bucks, you're in debt to them for 20, well, to pay off the debt, what do you need? 20 bucks, right? You need an equal amount of merit. You need $20 worth of merit. And so throughout history, we see this temptation of those who follow Jesus to try to merit, to try to earn the gift of grace. We try to earn jewels in our crowns, earn treasures in heaven as a way of paying off the debt that we owe because of our sins. I told this white lie, so to balance it out and get equal merit, perhaps I should take my neighbor's garbage out for them, right? That seems pretty cool. They're small things. You know, I was a bit of a glutton this weekend. I spent a ton of money on desserts and wine, so I'll equal it out by giving money to a shelter for the underhoused, right? It's like we want to pay off our own debt to sin because we don't want to be in debt to God. We don't want to owe God anything, so we try to balance our books by trying to pay off our own deficit, to try to bring ourselves out of the red through acts of service and prayer and generosity. But the reality is, no matter what we do, no matter how much we don't want to be in debt to God, No matter how much we don't want to be in debt to sin, there is nothing we can do that will dig ourselves out of this debt. Our debt to sin is so great 
that no matter what we do, our natural inheritance will always be death. Amen. I'm just kidding. But in Jesus, how much more? Grace and gift leave death and sin in the dust. And we don't have to earn it. We don't have to pay it back. We don't have to keep record of our accounts. We simply need to accept it freely. As freely as it was offered to us through the resurrection of Jesus. Isn't it funny how hard it is to freely accept from someone? I think most of us, our cultures, if someone gives you something, what do you have to do at some point? At some point, you've got to give back to them. But that's not the way it works for God. I wonder what my heart would look like, what my outlook on life would be like if I could fully live into this. If I could stop striving in my own strength to earn my merit. If I could face the realities of sin and death with my eyes on the exponentially greater realities of grace and gift. Now, it doesn't take away the realities of sin and death and pain and brokenness. It's not going to even take away our questions and our laments and even our anger at times. But living in grace, accepting the gift, grace isn't inert in us. It isn't passive. Grace in us reorients us. It shapes us. Grace in us makes room for reimagining and re-envisioning the realities of life and death. But to live into that and to walk into it, we need to let go of this idea of whatever I owe, I need to pay for myself. Now, some of you may feel like you're amazing and you don't need this gift. Well, you're wrong. But let me uh, specify You probably are amazing. (laughs) You are amazing. I mean, this is true for everyone's in God's eyes. I can say unquestionably, everyone here, you are amazing. But you're not, your amazingness doesn't make you able to to not have this debt. You do need this gift. You can't even come close to paying your debt off on your own, no matter how fabulous you may be. But I'm guessing that more of us don't really feel this way when we think about life. We probably, a lot of us, feel unworthy of God's love or forgiveness or grace. We may feel broken parts of ourselves are unredeemable. You may feel ashamed that you don't do enough for God. Well, God isn't measuring you like that. God's not keeping a balance sheet Even if God was keeping a balance sheet, God just erases it and rips it up with his exponential grace. But I I don't even think that's true. I don't think God is keeping a balance sheet. Paul says in verse 15, the gift is not like the trespass. And it's not. Sin requires payback. But the grace and gift of God that reigns through righteousness and brings eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, 
That grace is unmerited. So let's receive it and walk in it. Let's pray. God, we all carry places of shame, of places where we've failed, where we feel like we haven't measured up, where we owe so- someone has done something and we owe someone and we feel ashamed for it. Whether it's because they've done something great for us or because we haven't been great to them. But God, you replace our shame with honor. You replace our guilt with forgiveness. And the debts that we owe, literal, figural, metaphorical, theological, spiritual, the debts that we owe are nothing in compared to your exponentially greater grace and gift. We ask that you would help us to live in the realities of this, that if we could just accept it, that your grace in us could change us and mold us. And it would change. I mean, you're, we, we want to live for you. We want to do things out of our love for you. But Lord, we long to do them just out of love and not trying to earn back something that's been given to us freely. So Jesus, help us. Help us receive this gift that we may know who we are in your eyes and we may walk in it. Amen. Let's just take some time of quietness and reflect on what God may be speaking to you or something that's touched your heart through uh, the words that God has given to Greg. Let's just take some time of quiet. God, help us to come before you and to open our lives and our hearts to receive the abundance of your grace. And we thank you for the great love you have for us. Please stand as we continue to sing together.
brokenness complete. That picture is different for each of us, but it is so full of your grace and your love. Help us to truly believe that we come, can come in your brokenness, in our brokenness, and we can be complete. We can be made whole at the foot of your cross. We thank you that you love us so much. Amen. And we come in gratitude and thanksgiving. And we are thankful that God calls us to be his children. We can come in our brokenness and our sin. And we accept the free gift of grace. And in response to that gift, we worship through giving our lives and our financial resources as we are able to further God's kingdom here on earth. And there are ways to give physically in the box at the back and online as indicated on the screen. And as always, if you're visiting with us, please feel no obligation to give. We're glad that you're worshiping with us. But if giving is part of your worship, you please feel welcome to join us in that. And let's continue to sing one more song of worship and praise to God. Thank you. 